Welcome to the Inside Texas Football YouTube channel powered by InsideTexas.com. I am your host, Justin Wells. Joining me today for our weekly X's and O's recap is Ian Boyd, our X's and O's guru at Inside Texas, and Mr. Paul Waddlington, a man of many, many talents, one of those being knowing football. Gentlemen, always a pleasure to hang out with you guys. I think we're still kind of reeling from the, the big news yesterday, and that's Alabama's head coach Nick Saban announcing his retirement. Uh, the residual effects, the, the, the aftershock is, is going to be big. We, we know that. And today we're going to touch a little bit more on, on Nick Saban and what he did exactly at Alabama and how each instance ties into the University of Texas. Steve Sarkeesian, roster you know, accumulation, stuff like that. There, there, there are so many different angles that we can we can look at from a Texas standpoint of how Nick Saban affected college football. We're going to talk about adaptability. We're going to hit on the analyst army that he created and flourished with. We're going to talk about his vitality curve. We're going to talk about recruiting. And guys, he changed the game similar to Mac Brown in the recruiting landscape. And then we're going to finish with scheme because this guy, a lot of times people don't like to change their, 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 their colors, but this, this guy was, was a tiger with many stripes, and, and I think that's what helped him continue his, his dominance for years after years. Gentlemen, always a pleasure to have you guys up. Let's start with adaptability. Let, let, let's open up with the big thing. How did Saban change the game? Paul, I want you to start because this is a loaded question, and, and I'm going to give you a few just quick stats so you can, you can you know, synthesize. 11-1 in SEC championship games. In the era that the SEC was so dominant, 123 NFL draft picks under Nick Saban have accumulated over $2.2 billion in their NFL careers and earnings. That blows my mind. The numbers we are seeing are crazy. Paul, how did Saban really do this? Well, let me add, we'll extol his virtues a little more because it almost reads like fiction, right? When you go over his resume. 199 and 23 at Bama. Gentlemen, he had more first round draft picks at Bama than he did losses. That's NCAA dynasty mode level stuff. It's it's silly. He's the only coach in NCAA football history to win a national title in three different decades. Oh. How do you do that? Well, it's durability. And we're going to talk about the things that made that durability exist how he changed the game. Uh, seven national titles overall, six at Bama, one at LSU, of course. Ian, did you did you have something you wanted to add to the resume? Uh, I want to dispute his 11-1 SEC championship record, but I've been unable to find the second loss. I could have sworn he lost one recently to Georgia, and I cannot find it. Uh, I think that was LSU. I think that was the year they lost, that Bama lost to LSU and Georgia beat LSU in the SEC championship. I may be wrong. Y'all I don't know. I'll tell you what, if you find that info, let us know, Ian. Otherwise, we're going to press on. Yeah, Let's talk about his adaptability. So one of the things that characterized Saban is he's got Saban 102030 at Bama. Yeah. And he never stopped innovating. So really successful coaches after they win one national title, two national titles, three national titles – they tend to get complacent, or at minimum, they start to think that they've perfected the wheel. Uh, Saban's whole approach was, if it ain't broke, break it. 
because he wanted to be ahead of the curve. He wanted to always be adaptable and be at the forefront of football. And I'll, let's talk about an example relevant to Texas fans. The Alabama team we played in, in 2009 for the national title, 2010 technically, right? Right. Uh, that was built in Saban's original conception of, a, of, a, of an elite football team. Huge linebackers, 250-pound guys in a 3-4 defense, two big guys anchoring the edge, two huge guys on the middle plugging interior gaps, never, not even asked to do much in coverage, not really even going sideline to sideline, going from tackle to tackle, right, and bringing physicality. Safeties. Mark Barron weighed 225 pounds playing safety, right? Became an NFL linebacker. Huge uh, players. Nose tackle. Terrence Cody, 365 pounds, right? Uh, uh, this Marcel Darius. <laughs> massive. Yeah, Marcel Darius. Huge, massive players. Physicality, strength. Uh, certainly speed was welcome, but not the primary factor. The innovation of spread offenses hit. They start to exploit Alabama. Alabama starts to show some chinks in the armor, right? And Saban, while publicly saying, I don't like all this hurry up spread offense. It's a player safety issue, uh, blah, 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 all this nonsense. Privately, he's scrambling to completely remake his entire defensive philosophy. He didn't hold on to any of it. So you flash forward and Bama's got 240-pound edges who are now primarily pass rushers not run stoppers they've got interior linebackers that weigh 225 and they're dropping into coverage they've got safeties that weigh 190 and they're running around manning up like corners and you've got defensive linemen that range between 290 and 310 all of them have a motor all of them can pass rush they're not just occupying gaps in space this man, who was a, a great defensive coach, a great defensive innovator, completely remade his entire philosophy in, what, three years? So to me, that's one example of adaptability. Ian, do you have any thoughts about his adaptability on the offensive side of the ball? Well, the, the shift to tempo and spread was, uh, I mean, he adjusted his defense, like you said, to handle that. But he also just adopted that offense. I have an article that I just published on Inside Texas um, earlier than people will see this, but Nick Saban's offense that he beat Texas with in the Rose Bowl was ground and pound. Big, wide, thick offensive linemen, although they still prefer that, and run it to Mark Ingram until he gets tired and then bring in Trent Richardson and hand it to him instead, right? Mac Brown decided to emulate that style and move away from the spread, which he nearly won two national championships with. But uh, Saban found that it had diminishing returns. He started having trouble with uh, Hugh Freeze, um, with, uh, uh, help me out. Well, Kevin Sumlin and Johnny Manziel. Yeah. Um, he, he, I remember him going up to Sumlin after the 2013 game and saying, you just took two years off my life. <laughs> Because they won that game, but Manziel had like 550 yards of offense individually. Yeah. Uh, so what does he do? He hires Lane Kiffin. He installs RPOs. He goes and gets uh, Loxley in Maryland now. He gets Brian Dayball, who's been doing that in the NFL. He gets Sarkeesian from the Norm Chow Pete Carroll tree. Um, 
I, th- I feel like one of the main iteration when you said like there's been four iterations of Alabama football, either the second or the third revitalization was, hey, let's just go score 40, 50 points a game and beat teams that way while I figure out defense. Unbelievable. Yeah. Defensive yeah. Coach. Keep going. No, I mean, that's it. I mean, he doesn't, he just wins. Well, How do you talk that point? Sorry, I just wanted to jump in. Yeah. Uh, Nick Saban, defensive guru, lives and dies by the defensive side of the bomb. That's where he grew up. That's That was his tutelage. That's his baby. At a certain point, they interview him and he just says, yeah, offense is more important than defense now. The changes in the rules mean that. Adapt or die. Uh, I acknowledge that now. Let's go score 50. Who does that? Nobody. I got, I got one more, too. I got one more, too. He was famous for a long time for this shuffle technique he taught to his cornerbacks. Where he was like, why should I teach them to backpedal when I can just teach them this other deal that's that's easier and cheaper and works better and I can get bigger guys on the field, etc. Um, and then he moved away from his own technique around like 2018 or so, 2017, because it stopped working. And so like his personal baby that he like, you could see him talking about at clinics all the time. Like I teach my corners to do this because everybody else is wrong and I'm right about this. And this is why <laughs> it was so great. It stopped working. And he said, well, okay. And then he dropped it. You know, Nick Saban has, has shown that he can, he can adapt. And that, that, that was essentially what, you know, what we went over. He, he and that, you know, in a, in a job, that coaches are kind of rooted in their their beliefs. And it's hard to they, – they're just almost stubborn to a fault to, to do that. And they get – like like uh, Paul said, they get complacent. This, this kind of shifts segues to the analyst army that he created. He would take these cast-off coaches, some getting fired for, you know, bad reasons, you know, horrible reasons, bring them in and rejuvenate them. And, and I feel like he was the first one to, to really do that. And, and, and honestly, like everything else, perfect it. And, and, and we know that because Steve Sarkeesian is probably not the head football coach in Texas right now if he doesn't do that. Ian, how did you see that? How did you see that shift with bringing in guys with different points of view and different egos? Because head coaches have egos. All college coaches do, but especially the head coaches and kind of having to keep those checked at the door before you came on campus in Tuscaloosa. I'm trying to remember the first major guy he did that with and when it was, but he brought in this, he brought in this one guy and it was like, Oh, Saban's, is he just doing this guy a favor? It's helping him out. But then all of a sudden it, it, Saban was just stockpiling all the nation's best coaches and people started to realize like, Oh, Oh no. Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) because for one like he put them to work as analysts and so he'd have like this top offensive or defensive mind scouting opponents for him right and 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 giving him his their thoughts for him to to digest but then he also clearly was developing a bench because they were constantly having all this turnover from everybody coaches assistants and it's like well he's already been molding this top level coach into a potential lackey in his system. Like the, the replacement, like notably, like as, as Paul alluded to earlier, um, well actually you didn't allude to this yet. We're going to get to it later, but he had Sarkeesian waiting on the bench to coach the national championship game in 20, 
16 when they had to fire Lane Kiffin uh, right before the championship game. It's like, what do we do? Don't worry. We have the other wonderkin from the exact same coaching tree and staff who's been with us all year just sitting and learning. Paul, synthesize it, man. Some of the analysts include, of course, Steve Sarkeesian. Uh, So this this analyst army was not only functionally useful for Saban because he could take these fired or discredited or disgraced coaches and let them rehab, but they were eager to prove themselves. And as Ian was saying, he would give them a very narrow task. Hey, elite offensive mind, I want you to just look at RPOs this year. And and you're going to spend 40 hours in the lab constructing cool RPOs for us. And the coach is like, great, (laughs) you know, sounds awesome. Well, it was not just an idea factory. It was a laundry. Steve Sarkeesian couldn't get an interview until he went to Alabama and became an analyst and then worked his way up and became an OC. After that, he's the head coach at the University of Texas, a top five college football job, right? It was a it was a way that you could wash away your sins under St. Nick. And based <laughs> on St. Nick's vouching for you, hey, this guy's got it all together now. He's squared away. You could then go be hired. Mike Loxley, head coach at Maryland. He was a disgraced coach that did yes. his time. Major Applewhite. Texas connection, right? Yeah. Uh, we've got Mike Stoops, Chris Winkie, who's now the LA Rams uh, quarterbacks coach, Butch Jones. People forget that. Oh, I mean, it's it's really interesting if you go through that. So not only did he get the technical benefit of these guys, but he got really hungry guys who knew that this was their last chance to rehabilitate themselves, to launder their past sins under St. Nick. So I always thought that was really interesting on the analyst army aspect. And he invented it. Yeah, he absolutely did. And, and, and like I said earlier, you know, Sark's not in Austin without him. And, and, and to, you know, tie it in with Texas even more, you know, it, it, he showed these guys what the standard is. I felt like Sark had two of the best mentors in college, in college football history with Pete Carroll and with Nick Saban. And Pete Carroll was always real big on stockpiling talent, obviously, but competition at every position. Even if you've got four five-star running backs, by God, get a fifth one and get a sixth one because the best are going to come out of that group. And our best player is going to come from that group. And I think Sark learned that. And, and turning it over, he did the same thing with Saban. And, and he learned that, you know, you, you've got to be adaptable. You've got to, you've got to do that. And, and I think we've seen a little bit of Saban trying his own analyst army. We've seen over the last couple of years, he's brought in a handful of analysts coming back from other jobs, trying to, you know, maybe not so much reinvent themselves, but but getting another shot, bringing in a Larry Fedora, bringing in a Gary Patterson. I think we're seeing some of Sark picking, biting little pieces off of the Saban process, which it would be silly if he didn't. And so uh, from the analyst army standpoint, I think, like you said, Paul, you know, he invented it, perfected it. He, he, he's got the patent on that one. Um, real quick, I want you to like and subscribe Inside Texas uh, Football YouTube channel. Please do that. Get get us to 6,000 subs. We, we always appreciate all the viewers, all the help. Come see us at InsideTexas.com. Ian posted a great story like he talked about earlier about, about Saban and, and, and his stuff that he, he's changed over the years. I posted a, a new junior day recruiting list and some updates on Ryan Williams, the wide receiver out of Saraland, Alabama, that's going to be at Texas on June tw- or January 27th. Be sure and check those things out. And also, we got to pay the bills. Andre the lawyer, that's our guy. 
You got to go see that, man. If you ever need it, if you ever get in, in, in a pickle, if you ever get in a bind, Andre the Lawyer is the man. He is located in Dallas, Texas. He helps with all injured Longhorns, with anybody, rather. Car wrecks, slip and falls, uh, 18-wheeler accidents, on-the-job accidents, injuries, wrongful deaths. Andre is a proud Inside Texas reader. And if you're hearing this, he does want to help you. Give him a call. 214-444-8808. Be sure and give Andre the Lawyer a call and, and let him help you out. Unbelievable guy. We appreciate everything he does for Inside Texas. Let him help you out, guys, if you can. We're going to go to the Vitality Curve. And I'm going to let Paul wax on this one first because I, I want to hear kind of uh, what, what we talked about pre-production, about, about what Saban has done in this regard. Go ahead. So I would say along with adaptability, the enforcement of a vitality curve was the most key thing that if you asked me to disseminate and boil down Nick Saban and why he was so incredibly successful, the most successful college football head coach who's ever lived, this is one of those hallmarks right along with adaptability. And I think the two go hand in hand. Saban, as I said, if it ain't broke, break it. Because people are out there innovating. And if you're not in the top 5 or 10% of the curve, you're going to fall behind. Because he understood that winning and successful big programs have a drag. And it's not just this inertia of the size of the program and them feeling very self-satisfied with their success. It's this notion that complacency is always trying to creep into every niche and cranny of your program. And yes. Saban called it rat poison. And he believed yeah. that journalists and media were trying to introduce rat poison to his program. He believed the players themselves were trying to introduce rat poison. Saban believed he himself could introduce rat poison if he got too self-satisfied to smug about his accomplishments. He was always looking to root it out in his staff. If they felt a little too good about themselves, Saban would let them know in no uncertain terms uh, that last year was last year. And I don't care. It's done. Cool. We won a national title. Are we yeah. going to win another? Very few human beings are wired that way. And Nick Saban's one of them. So he enforced that vitality curve in a bunch of different ways. I'll give you an example, small, and we can work up to big through you and, 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 and uh, just through Ian and Justin. In a national title game, gentlemen, <laughs> Nick Saban took his star quarterback, currently a star for the Philadelphia Eagles, Jalen Hurts, and put him on the bench for a true freshman because Hurts missed a couple of throws. When has that ever happened in college football history? What coach, the coaching wisdom is dance with who brung you. Talk about a Texas connection. A pretty good coach said that. You don't abandon your quarterback ever. You always stick by that guy. You let him work through it, play through it. It's like if Kalen DeBoer had grabbed Michael Penix and sat him on the pine in the middle of the second quarter against Michigan. Hmm. It doesn't happen. Nick Saban sat his star quarterback in the national title game, put in a true freshman, and won the game. <laughs> like... He took out emotion, Paul. You know why? Because he he is really close to a good core group of his players. Jalen Hurts, you're not going to find many players he talks high, more highly about than Jalen Hurts. Like, yep. he speaks so glowingly about Jalen. And Jalen's a great guy, great family, great, great, great story, absolutely. He took emotion out. You know, 
uh, coaches usually, like you said, dance with the one he brought you. You get attached to those guys. He, he's like, I can't be emotional. I have to win a national championship. And to do that was unprecedented. Well, beyond that, Justin, he didn't give – a lot of coaches are worried about what the media will say. Oh, Why God. did you not go for it on fourth and two down? Well, if we don't the get it. Guess. Saban doesn't yeah. care if you second guess him. He's trying to win the game. And frankly, he doesn't have any respect for the people criticizing him. So why does he care? He is the thickest skin in some ways and a thin skin in other ways. But the other part of the vitality curve, working small to big, because we're going to cover the bigger parts of it, is Ian alluded to it, buried the lead on my, my story, but he fired his offensive coordinator the week before the national title game. Folks, he had just beaten Washington in 2016. They're going to go play for the national title. Lane Kiffin has been hired at Florida Atlantic, right? As part of his rehab, he's gone through the Saban rehab laundry process. And Saban felt Kiffin was delivering a subpar game plan and was too concerned with Florida Atlantic. So he fired him the week before the national title. There wasn't a month between the games, guys. It was a week. He fired him, turned over to play calling to someone else. Who does that? Who does Again, that? Nobody. 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 So I'll turn it over to Ian. If you've got some great ideas of the vitality yeah. curve, there are many. Well, I, I will say, I think he got this some from Bill Belichick, or at least they are, they are both wired that way. Obviously, Saban is a protege of Bill Belichick. He worked under him in the NFL. And if you read like the Patriot way or any of the other glowing things that have been written about Bill Belichick. One of the things that he does really well is he's like, he'll go around the staff room and he's like, I want to know what you think. Like, I'm going to ask questions until I arrive at like conflict and I arrive at the things that you're holding back that you don't want to say, because there's no way we get as good as we need to get unless everyone actually voices their concerns and we have it out. Yeah. Um, then that's like, that's such a difficult, you know, God. yes. I mean, there's so many things. That you know how coaches are, in, how insecure coaches are, and he's pulling those out of you. That's like a session in, with the shrink where you're laying on a couch. Yeah, that was a bad call in, in in 2015. I'm still thinking about that one. Like they don't want to admit those insecurities. Yeah, I think um, it seems like Belichick was Belichick was losing this edge in in New England and just like failing to hire and surround himself with the right people anymore. And a lot of his longtime really good assistants left after Brady left. Um, Saban, I kind of wonder if this is where Saban was finally slipping as well, because he was getting to this point where like uh, his last round of offensive coordinator hires, as we all recall, he was struggling to find a coach and it was like, Oh, he may hire this Ryan Grubb from Washington that falls through. Oh, he may hire Garrett Riley. Well, he just got destroyed by Kirby Smart. Maybe that's not going to happen. And he lands on Tommy Reese, and a lot of people were like, wait, what? Tommy Reese? Um, and I think Levy was even considered and in, in talked to. And, and the, the word that was getting around was that Saban wanted people to come in and run the Alabama offense. And he wanted to hire a defensive coordinator to come in and run the Alabama defense, meaning a pre-existing playbook. Right. Right. Like maybe you'll come in and tweak a little bit, but for the most part, I'm bringing you in to do what I say and I'm going to watch over your shoulder 
like a hawk, like I've always done. And I think, so I think he was losing a little bit of that. Maybe that's what he felt like. This is the time he was in the process of, of hiring coordinators when he just decided like, no, I'm done actually, this is it. Um, so maybe he realized that this was like a slipping component. That is such a difficult thing. Like, I think if we, we could go back to Texas here, if you want to talk about any single Texas coach in the last 20 years since I've watched the program that has struggled and slipped, inability to delegate is usually like number one or the number two on the list. Inability to hire people, delegate, and oversee quality controls a head coach. Uh, we've had the last two before Sark were guys that wanted to be hands-on with everything. Um, we're not good at delegating. We're not good at hiring. We're not good at bringing in tension. Um, Mac Brown obviously was very much slipping in that regard at the end. It's a, uh, it's one of those things that I think there's a lot of things that people can learn from Saban, but in many ways he was this sort of singular force who just had all these talents and strengths, sort of like a, a Julius Caesar or a Napoleon Bonaparte of college football. Like everyone copied and emulated, but there's not going to be like another one, you know. He's similar height. He, he fits the Napoleon complex. He fits that one. Yeah, both both wore lifts in their shoes. Uh, yeah. Talking about the vitality curve in order to lift up your program, I, I do want to kind of delve into what he did well and not just do the swan song right now. Um, I think the other part of it was his lack of sentimentality for other coaches in a professional sense. And, and what I mean by that is most coaches, the vast majority of coaches bring in their boys. These yeah. are the guys I came up with. These are the guys I'm comfortable with. These are the guys I agree with. I need to be in my comfort zone because I need to feel like I'm supported and these guys don't have other agendas. Nick Saban didn't have that feeling. He'd go hire anyone from anywhere with any philosophy if he felt it would help Alabama win. And, and he would work that guy to death for two or three years. And you'd move right. on and move up, right? Uh, that's a vitality curve. That's the definition of it. He didn't have any sentimentality for it. And, you know, if you're one of his old boys that, you know, were with him in his Mac days, you're not guaranteed a job with him. And, and again, that's different from most coaches. Um, you know, it's just he enforced the vitality curve not only on his own team with, you know, I made the Jalen Hurts example, but also his own staff. Firing Lane Kiffin the week before the national title game because he felt Kiffin was distracted and not being sufficiently respectful of the game plan. Uh, that's just unheard of. It's unprecedented. And, and I think that's a key part. Another part, a sneakier part that we are kind of aware of, and this isn't just to extol uh, Saban's virtues or, or say he's perfect, but he worked every angle in college football, guys. And one of them was abusing the medical hardship system. Ian or Justin, can you can you talk about that and give us some insight on how Saban would take guys who didn't quite perform at the level he wanted and then free up that scholarship? The famous Saban, the famous Saban trapdoor in its many forms. This is a good Justin one because Justin can also maybe uh, segue from that into some of his recruiting innovations and methods as well. Go ahead, Justin. Yeah, this is something, you know, Saban, you know, we're, we're, gonna, we're just going to shift it to the recruiting part of it because with Saban, you have to understand, you know, he came along at a time at Alabama where social media became more than just Facebook. 
you know, Facebook was the first. That was the the, the initial, well, not the first, but the 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 best. There was obviously MySpace, my friends, things of that sort, but Facebook really took off. That didn't have an effect on recruiting. But Twitter, Twitter changed high school recruiting forever. And what happened was you would you would kids would start tweeting out offers from from coaches. And if you were a player in the state, if you were in that state, the coaches are kind of held back because Alabama's offering you and you're just a sophomore. Well, Texas wants to offer you. They're interested, but they got they want to reevaluate a little bit longer. You're just 15 years old. Well, Saban thought of a good way. He's like, well, I'm going to extend an offer, but they can't really commit to it. And it's like, well, what's that? What's that about? And that goes again to what you guys have been talking a little bit about. There was no emotion involved. This was cutthroat. An offer from Alabama 98% of the time at the time Saban was in at Alabama was not an offer of a scholarship. It was an offer to get on, in your car on your dime, drive to Tuscaloosa, go to camp, go to his office, shake his hand, get felt up, ask, ask, and, ask and answer any possible questions you can. And if you pass that series of tests, then Saban would say, son, now you have a committable offer. If you'd like, we would like you to join the program in Alabama. And these are who we have on the board. And I'm only going to take three. So if, when, when you want to get your spot, you need to get your spot. The non-committable offer was almost invented by Nick Saban. And I think it was partly because of Twitter. It was partly because of social media, partly because coaches were having to adapt on the fly to all these things thrown at these young kids. And recruiting just got younger and younger and younger. You know, we used to just cover one year. Now we cover three years back because that's when they're starting to get offered. Anthony Hill was offered in eighth grade. You know, it, 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 that's kind of the way it, that was the trend. Nick Saban was at the forefront of it. You could look at a list of all the D1 offers from each school, you know, every year. And Alabama would always be near the top of offers. And you'd think 75% of those players aren't going to Alabama. Well, no, but he wanted to keep his foot in the door. And the only way he could do that was to give them that non-committable offer. And he wouldn't tell them it's non-committable unless they were smart enough to ask. And most kids didn't want the truth. They didn't want that answer. But they would go on campus and things would, would, would go on from that. But, you know, Saban, he, he just he changed so much of that. He, he became a recruiting power. And not just because it was more. It was also the brand that he built essentially, but it was him and it was that brand. And we talked about it last night on the live stream. When he walked into a field house, the school stopped. Everyone stopped. He had that sort of effect. And, and it's funny because he would trapdoor you. There was no loyalty in this house. You know, every player that played at Alabama for four years under Saban, if you played for four years under Saban at Alabama, you at least won one national championship. In 17 years, that's insane. But that goes to his talent evaluation. That goes to offering, throwing out those offers, those fish hooks, as many as you can catch, get as many on campus as you can. He somehow had the leverage in almost every recruitment. And if you know about five-star recruitments, the coaches don't often have the leverage in those, in those instances. Saban did, and he utilized it. I want to hear you guys a little bit more. I know, I know, I know Paul loves the subject of the medical transfer and things of that sort. I want to know what you thought about it. Yeah. So I think of the vitality curve in this recruiting thing as being one, one part of the same continuous process, which was 
It's a mathematical question, Justin. How many recruits that are elite can I bring in? Because I know a certain amount of them will pan. Yes. So how did Nick Saban bring in all these guys and keep bringing in 25, 27, 28-man classes, which was the hallmark of the Saban dynasty during its, its heyday? Yeah. And the answer was this vitality curve from recruiting, which was you bring in these guys. If they didn't quite pan when you got them on campus, you realized they weren't quite Bama good. He would offer them a face-saving out, which was I can kind of cut you and not renew your scholarship. Or I noticed that you've got a sprained ankle. I noticed you've got a hangnail. I noticed you've got acne. I could put you on a medical scholarship for that. And you can go off. You'll still be on a scholarship. You'll still be a Bama football player. But you're not with the team. You don't count against our numbers. And then you figure out what you want to do from there. A lot of those guys took that. And it's the Saban trapdoor. And it was kind of a, hey, this is what's going to happen to you. There's one of two ways you can have this happen to you. And most players would choose the face-saving. Uh, and many of those players, if you follow them, they'd go on medical scholarship back in the 2010s. And then quietly, they'd go play out the rest of their college career somewhere, magically healing, right? But when the NCAA started sniffing around on that and said, hey, you can't be putting nine dudes on medical hardships every year, Saban just shrugged and went, oh, well, let's go to the next one. That one's burned. So it's, it's a part of the vitality curve. It's a part of the change in the recruiting game. And the whole idea to, to Saban, this is a big math problem. How many inputs of talented players can I get through my program in four years? And the, if the answer is 120, I'm going to play better football than if the answer is 90. And so yeah. Mac Brown during this time is bragging that we only made 24 offers and 22 of them were accepted. Like that was something to be proud of. And Saban's yeah. like, I sprayed out 200 offers. Only 35 of them were serious. But it was a way to just stay in the game with these guys and watch them through their senior year and figure out who spent the summer lifting weights or who spent the summer at the pool. So uh, another example of how Saban innovated on maybe the darker edges of college football. And Sartre didn't adapt everything from, from Saban. He, he took the stuff he liked, but as we know – so Texas is one of the least offered schools every season. They, they really are. They, they are one of the least. The, the scholarships do mean something to, to Sark. And, and he plays the long game. And I think it's just a, 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 an idea of different personalities, honestly. Because Sark is a little bit more, trans, I wouldn't say transparent, but he's a little bit more, he's just a little nicer. He's a little nicer, you know. Nick Saban's at Gruff. Old school football coach, defensive guy, pounding, pound, you know, pounding ground. Sark's that West Coast, high life living, you know, loving the sun, loving, loving Austin. Let's throw the ball 50 times and it just punish teams vertically. He, he right. Saban's taken a little bit of that. I mean, Sark took a little bit of his recruiting chops, but ultimately Saban, I think the way he's we, we can we can connect it to Texas is that Sark is actually kind of a little bit of the opposite of that. I, you know. I was always shown that you had to push for these kids. You had to push. You had to push, not just for coaches, but for recruiting riders, for, for people in our industry. You got to push. You got to push. Sark said, no, you don't. No, you don't. You don't have to be that used car salesman that has to get you off the lot in a car or he gets in trouble. Sark's proven he doesn't have to do that. If anything, Sark's long game is the reason they've built the, 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 program, the, the classes they have the last three years. He's... I don't want to say reinvented it, but he has made it where 
You don't, you can, you don't have to pressure these kids and talking about trap doors. Nobody had a trap door as devious as Jimbo Fisher in college station. Nobody. And it was literally a trap door. Literally. He'd press a button and the office door would slam shut. The parents would try to walk in, the door would shut in front of him and he would leave the kid in there with him one-on-one, get him into that corner and all right, I'm going to push until it bursts. You know, Jimbo had his way of doing that, too, and it backfired. And so I just think it's unique that Sark adapted a lot of his stuff from Saban. But I think that's one thing where the personalities of the coach were, were different. I think Justin also, I mean, that's definitely kind of Sark's unique personality and his way of doing things. You know, he's as much Carol as yes. he is. Yes. Him, right? um, but also, I wonder how much of that is also like the state of Texas is a little bit different because the high school coaches are so powerful and influential. And if you don't do things a certain way, you can get into a little bit of trouble with their influence over their players and over the sport in general. Um, Mac Brown like played that to his advantage. Like he had them working different angles for him to make Texas football better. Nick Saban would get away with it because he's over there in Alabama. So he like, he makes non-committable offers in Texas and the high school coaches don't like it, but they're like, it's saving. It's Alabama. Yeah. Already established. If like, like Matt rule found out real quick when he came to Baylor, like you, you're not Nick Saban. You can't do the same things that Nick Saban was doing and have success here in the state of Texas. And not only this was also like a, a part of Saban's greatness was that the way he would like, you know, stack his roster with talent and then throw out these non-committable offers to all these really young up and coming blue chips in other team states, just completely discombobulated programs around the country. Yes. Like you got all these like you force the other coaches' hands instantly. Yes. yes. Oh, wait a minute. You don't like me in state because Alabama likes me, but Texas doesn't. Texas AM. It yeah. forced everybody's hand. And that was yeah. Just one of I mean he had there was like a period in college football where um Everyone, he was just occupying a hundred percent of the mental space in like every big yeah. booster and administrator and coach's head across most of the country. It was wild. Paul, how did the portal come into this now? Because I, I honestly feel like NIL and the transfer portal are probably two of the main reasons Saban decided to go ahead and go. I mean, that we don't know, but. I've, we just seen so many college coaches, you know, really Jay Wright at Villanova was the best example to me of, I don't like the direction college athletics are going. So I think I've had enough of it. Saban adapted though, when these things started happening, what, what are your takes on that? So Saban, like very interesting. We're looking now, we're scrambling. What are all the names to, to replace Saban at Alabama three years ago? Just go back three years, guys. Would we even have a discussion right now who would replace Saban if he retired three years ago? Who would it have been instantly? Dabo Sweeney. Dabo Sweeney. Why None. is he not being mentioned right now? Because he won't oh, touch the portal. His failure to adapt to the portal and to a lesser degree NIL. Not quite, not fully. Saban, not a big fan of the portal, not a big fan of NIL, immediately adopted both. He went and got Jameer Gibbs. He went and got players. Again, Changing the recruiting game. The recruiting game doesn't stop at high school, ladies and gentlemen. It's now extended well into college, right? So you can go get a Jameer Gibbs. You can go get these elite players. You can go get a starting safety. 
from uh, UAB and have Trent, Dil Trent Dilfer have a little tantrum about it. Uh, I mean, they've been, even the things he doesn't like or doesn't agree with, if it makes it a better football team, he'll go do it. He doesn't care. He doesn't, he's not precious. It's not about him. He's about trying to get the best product for Alabama. I think a lot of coaches can learn from that. And then finally, uh, Dabo's reluctance to exploit the portal and the subsequent decline of Clemson football is why he's not being announced today at a press conference. Amen. So another thing to note that I think Sark is being very judicious with the portal. He is learning that aspect. And I think we're going to see a very strong portal class for Texas this year, just like last year. Um, so anyway, the point is at whatever innovation or whatever thing is happening in college football, Saban doesn't say, well, we're Alabama. We're the ones who set the standard. We set the culture. We don't need a player from another culture. We have Bama culture. Saban goes, huh, that'll make our team better. Let's do that. No one does that. It seems that, so simple, doesn't it? It seems so simple. It, beyond coaching, go talk to some Fortune 500 CEOs. Go talk to small business owners. Go talk to people who've been very successful doing it one way. And then when it starts to go the other way, they resist it. They fight. They kick. They scream. They make excuses. Nick Saban goes, yeah, we'll do that. And here's how we're going to do it. And then he immediately has a structure and a professionalization of how to accomplish it most efficiently. That's a rare attribute. And you mentioned Napoleon or Caesar, Ian. It's a great comparison to Napoleon because Napoleon had ideas. And when he got contrary evidence, other than invading Russia in the winter, uh, when he got contrary evidence, he'd go, okay, we're going to do that now. And, and it's, it's a sign of really strong, really confident, really adaptable leaders. And there aren't that many of those in the world. Nick Saban was one of them. Absolutely. We're going to finish with scheme. And we've touched on this briefly, one through four. I mean, there's, it, it's a loaded bunch today, guys. And we appreciate you, you, you paying attention to us. Please like, please subscribe to Inside Texas Football YouTube channel. Come see us at InsideTexas.com. It's a great time. We're going to finish off with scheme. Schematic innovation. I'm going to let Ian take this one. I'm going to hand it to him zone read style. And then he's going to pivot to, to, to Paul and, and we'll wrap this up. What, and like I said, we've already kind of touched on it a little bit. Can you summarize in, in, in a sense and kind of go with where you saw Saban excel here? So uh, he has one major schematic thing to his name. He's been at the forefront of a dozen in college football, not as the innovator himself, but more in line with what Paul is saying, where he would uh, just copy what somebody else was doing or bring someone in to update Alabama's method. But uh, he came up under Belichick and under uh, Bill Parcells. So it was all about three down defense and the three, four defense that was at one time revolutionary in the NFL. But what they did that, that is ubiquitous across college football now and that Saban gets a lot of credit for is pattern matching coverage. So they would play, uh, as he would put it, they would play Dan Marino. And it's like, if we play cover two or, or Dan Marino and, and other top passing offenses of the day, if we play cover two and sit back, they're going to run the ball down our throats. If we bring a guy into the box and play cover three, our spot dropping zone coverages are getting destroyed by these newer, better quarterbacks. Like as he would say, like that that drop on that break on the ball 
bleep doesn't work when it's Dan Marino throwing the football. Well, they invented an entire new system of coverage where it's like, you're going to have a zone, but you're going to play man coverage on the route that ends up in your zone. Okay. So he developed this whole elaborate system. And I, I don't know the extent to which he was the sole innovator, the way he's often credited with it. But at the very least, he was like in the room and he was a part of it, right? He would he developed like cover three match coverage, which is very common still. And then eventually he was also at the forefront of doing that from too high with quarters. Um, and he would develop all these rules like, okay, player, we're playing this variety of pattern matching right now on this snap, which means you figure out who you cover based on these three things. And then later, we're also going to run this match coverage and this match coverage and this catch coverage. And your rules are going to change a little bit based on who you cover based on the, the name of the coverage. And um, someday I'd be curious to know how he was able to successfully teach all of this to college football players. But uh, there's, there's gotta be something there, both in terms of probably innovation as a teacher and maybe innovation in obscuring rule violations. Um, well, maybe someday we'll find out, but um, really, I mean, this is like one of the most important parts of modern defensive football and he was there for it. But again, to Paul's, to, to Paul's point earlier, having been at the forefront of pattern matching coverage, he didn't let that be the sole thing for Alabama football. He kept pushing, innovating, adapting. So breaking what needed to be broke. Yeah. Well, so quick thought on that, Ian. That's a great summation of pattern matching. And and I don't think he was the inventor. I think he was the refiner of it. That he Probably. he created a better version of it than the original. But one thing that characterizes the two thoughts. One, Ian, you were saying you'd like to know how he taught it to college football players. Well, one, I think I think being an Alabama football player is not a 20-hour-a-week job as stipulated by the NCAA. Let me just go out on a limb and say that. And then two, Ian, his big rejection and, and panic about spread hurry-up offenses was because of pattern matching. Because I used to call it the brain transplant. What Nick Saban needed was time to communicate to his secondary in that 20 seconds do this, this, and this. This is how they're lined up. This is what's likely coming. And it would help that pattern match. It helped those players. He was giving them a brain transplant from the sideline. The hurry up offenses said, no more brain transplants, Nick. We're snapping the ball. And we're only running three routes, but you don't know which of the three we're running. And all of you're trying to get in the late signal and all that, all your guys are just looking to the sideline, panicked and confused. And that's when Saban knew he had to start changing some stuff top to bottom. And rather than cry about it, well, he cried about it a little. But while yeah. he was crying about it, he was fixing it. Yeah. And he was trying to buy time. The other part I'll say, and this is something that you'll, you'll hear this term in, in business books, and, and it's applicable to, to Nick Saban. Nick Saban, more than an innovator, although innovative as a personality, more than being an individual innovator. He wasn't Buddy Ryan. He didn't create the 46. He wasn't Art Bryles, who created a whole new system of offense, right? He was a fast follower. Meaning, the minute he saw an innovation, 
he knew because he knew football so cold, so well that he'd go, yep, that's it. And then he'd immediately say, we need to follow that. We need to do that. And he was a fast follower. So you don't always need to invent the wheel, but you know what you need to do? Go, that wheel's pretty helpful. We're going to do wheels. And in fact, I think we can improve on that wheel. And here's how I'm going to systematize the wheel. And here's how we're going to make a mass production plant of wheels. And I'm going to be Henry Ford. And you're a little kooky inventor who invented the wheel. And you're still poor living in your one-bedroom apartment. And I just created cars. <laughs> that's the Nick Saban difference. And that's how he would use the innovation of others to create the ultimate innovation, which is this ultra dominant football team in an era where we didn't think being an ultra dominant football team was possible anymore. So to me, that's the great, uh, that's the great lesson from Nick Saban. It's not this individual little thing he did, or this happened then, or this where it's the, the bigger picture of he wasn't sentimental about his own ideas. He wasn't sentimental about people. God knows. Only uh, Miss Terry. And he wasn't self-satisfied ever. There's no smugness to Nick Saban. There's no leaning back in his chair with his thumb in his suspenders, looking around his empire. It was like, we won the national title. Cool. What do we need to do to win the national title next year? Not many guys are geared that way. And every coach needs to fit that to their personality. But I think Steve Sarkeesian and Texas will ultimately benefit from their time under Nick Saban for the reasons that we talked about in this pod, in this, in this YouTube show. That's such a great point about innovators. I mean, I think that's true of most people that are famous for innovation in general. I guess George Friedman likes to say about the I, the iPhone, everything that makes the iPhone, the iPhone was developed by like a cold war military scientist and Steve jobs packaged it as the iPhone. Right. Um, but yeah, moving on to Texas. I mean, yeah, let's get a parting shot. How does this? How what what do what what can Texas learn ultimately? And Sark and and, and all of the above. What can they pull from Saban? We'll get a parting shot from each one of you, and then we'll wrap it up. I think, I mean, you. There's a lot of things that we've covered: the ruthless um, vitality curve and adaptation. Um, you can emulate that. You can trying to be a fast follower is probably a good idea for Texas in general, that the, the ability to manage a staff and to update quickly is a great idea. The problem is, is that those things are extremely difficult, especially when you're at a big bloated institution. And uh, I think Alabama has had a knack for being great at football with and without Nick Saban, but to some extent, I think you have to you have to say like you can't just go emulate Saban. No, there there's a there's a nature nurture thing here, and the nature of Saban is just you can't you can't nurture it, right? You gotta you just gotta find these great people and and put them in charge and get out of the way, right? Paul, what do you think? I mean, that's great. Uh, phenomenal parting thoughts. And I will say this. The greatness of Nick Saban was not evident when LSU hired him away from Michigan State. No. Yeah. Baton Rouge wasn't thrilled with that hire. Okay. Frankly, aside from his amazing job as an OC at 
at, at Alabama and his good work at USC in the same role. The greatness of Nick of, of Steve Sarkeesian, the head coach, was not evident when we hired him to Texas. Good okay? point. As a head coach. So the question is, are you hiring traits? And what we learned was Nick Saban defined the traits of a successful leader, coach, and manager. We're starting to see Steve Sarkeesian grow into his own version of that within his own comfort zone, to Ian's point, point. So the next progression in that evolution, I'm as eager as the rest of you to see, but I feel pretty good about what we've got in uh, at the University of Texas as our head coach, and I'm eager to see what he becomes. Hopefully, you know, we to- see, uh, hopefully we see him sign an extension soon that indicates that he will be doing that in Texas. Yeah. Christo Conte went on. He was already on the clock before yesterday. Now there's a shot clock, so it's, <laughs> it, it's getting a little bit closer. My only parting shot would be what you know. What could you? What can Texas get from Saban? You know, I, I listened to Lewis Riddick this morning, and he played for, under Bill, Bill Belichick and Nick Saban for the Cleveland Browns. And he said Nick Saban, you know, they had a process in 1994. This wasn't something that started in 2024, obviously, or ended in 24, rather. He said they, they, they've been doing this for 30, 40 years. And he said Nick Saban taught him not to look at the scoreboard, that just to take every play as it is and, and do what you had to do in that moment, to be in the moment, to be in your shoes, in your feet, at that time. And to me, the biggest thing I think Sark can take from Saban is the self-discipline. Nick Saban can write 20, is probably going to write a ton of books when he's retired, you know, and going into his retirement. And he's going to have a chapter on self-discipline in every single one of those things. Because if that to me, and that's my opinion, is the core of all of this. He is the ultimate self-discipline, ultimate push the instant gratification away Focus on today, the moment, the rep, the now, because we get so caught up in, well, who's next? Well, what's going to be the next big thing? Well, who's going to be the next there? Savings, you're worrying about too much. You need to worry about this rep. Get the most out of your body in this rep, and then we'll go to the next rep. And I think that could be emulated every program, but I honestly think Sark, that would be the best thing Sark could take from Saban. Gentlemen, I appreciate this so much. This went a little bit longer for our viewers, and we appreciate you sticking around. Please like and subscribe to the Inside Texas Football YouTube channel. I thoroughly enjoyed this. Uh, you know, Nick Saban, we, 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 had to, we, we had to make an audible today. We had to, we had to drop an RPO. Uh, it was Stark style, not Kiffin. We, we, we went with Stark on this one. And uh, I think it was a great idea Paul brought to the, to the group earlier today. Gentlemen, I appreciate you so much. From Paul Waddlington to Ian Boyd, I'm Justin Wells. Please come see us at InsideTexas.com, powered by the Inside Texas Football YouTube channel.